Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Hey, you can have a seat as you sit down, turn to someone next to you, say what's up to them, give them a high five, give them some knuckles, whatever you feel like doing. Talk to them about the, that's good. Ooh, we're all good. Sweet. The pulpit just came apart, but uh, hey, God's real. Thank you, Jeremy. Right on. Hey, real quick, I want to start uh, tonight's service a little in an orthodox way. I just felt like I wanted to do this during uh Worship. I want to do something. I want to honor and, and uh, recognize those serving tonight. So if you're serving in some capacity on our team, can you just stand up real quick so we can just honor you, clap for you, celebrate you? Yeah, stand up. Don't be embarrassed. Stand up. These people, there's three in the back, Noah, Christian, Chris, Chris in the sound booth. We got Mike. We got Carlos. We got uh, Andrew. You guys, so many of you stand in this room. Thank you guys for serving each week so faithfully. Scripture tells us the harvest is bountiful, but the workers are few. And you guys show up. You give your hearts. You give your passion. You love the people of this ministry so well. And I'm so thankful and honored to be your pastor and to do this with you. We couldn't do it without you. We love you. So feel free to take a seat. We love you guys. Right on. Thank you, Mike. And uh, hey, here's a bobby pin, whoever wants that. Uh, hey, I don't know if you have 2024 New Year's resolutions or things going on. Um, I, myself, I have one routine I'm committed to stick to this year. And it's one routine I know I'm going to see through to the end of the year. This one routine is very simple. This routine is binge-watching Survivor with Skylar all year long, okay? If you don't know what Survivor is, I'm going to show you a little clip. This kind of summarizes the show. This is pretty much what Survivor is. Let's uh, play the clip real fast. John, you went from really happy to really sad. It was either going to be my buddy or my grandmother coming, and uh, my grandmother's not here for a reason. What happened? She's... She's not around. I'm sorry, guys. I'm so don't, sorry. Don't be sorry. My grandmother's sitting home watching Jerry Springer right now. <laughs> Okay, if you're totally confused, Survivor is a reality TV show 
that they take 20 people, they drop them on a random island in the middle of the ocean, and for 39 days, they have to pretty much barely eat, barely sleep, commit, commit themselves to a bunch of physical challenges, puzzles, all these things. And at the end of the game, you win like a million dollars if you're the one, okay? I love Survivor for two reasons. The first reason is it just shows people's real social side. It really shows people, you get them around a million dollars and the things they're willing to do. And at the end of every day, what happens is somebody gets voted off the island, okay? It's kind of like Bachelor, like you don't get a rose, okay? So um, pretty much what happens is people have to get voted off. And people are like, on one moment, hey, you're my best friend. Like, oh, like you're a second mom to me. Oh, you're so close to me. I love you. I'll do anything for you. Then the next time they're around, they're like t- talking the most mad crap about this person. They're just backstabbing them, gossiping them. Some of you are like, that's my friends currently. But this is what Survivor is. And then the second thing I love about Survivor the first is it just shows the real side of people. Like, you really see the human condition on Survivor. The second thing I love about Survivor is just the sheer perseverance that these people have. It is crazy the things we will do as humans to win money, to win fame, to whatever we may do. These people will persevere to the dire end. They are like skin and bones by the very end. Being out there for almost a month and 10 days does something to somebody. I love witnessing just the sheer perseverance in a person playing this game. I'm a little obsessed with it. I'll be binging it all year. Sorry to disappoint you, but that's kind of the vibe for my New Year's resolution. But I bring this up because I find it quite captivating. I find it quite compelling paying attention to the degree, to the characteristic people portray to persevere through a situation. Coming out of 2023, stepping into 2024, a few months ago, as we were transitioning in the years, I was just asking the Lord, Lord, what are you asking of me? What, what, are, you, what are you desiring for this next year? What, what is your call? What is your ask to me? And I was studying in the book of Joshua, and that's where we'll be tonight. And in the book of Joshua, I, I was reading the last chapter, and I felt the Lord place on my heart, I'm calling you to be a part of a Joshua generation. I'm calling you to be a part of a Joshua generation. See, where, we read, where Landon read tonight, where we are, is this fascinating part of Scripture And one of the key attributes that this generation displays, that this person in Scripture displays, that I believe we can learn from, what I believe we are stepping into in this year, is the sheer attribute of perseverance, specifically persevering faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been paying attention to some of the news cycles, things going on around the world, and it can feel a little intimidating. It can feel almost as if for the average person, things are just going to get harder, that socially, economically, religiously, there's kind of this pressure pushing in on the average person in the West. And I believe as we are looking down almost the barrel of what feels like 2024 in many aspects, the Lord is asking each and every one of us to step into a persevering faith to step into a kind of faith, to be a part of a kind of generation that isn't squishy or complacent or compromising, but persevering. Now, I want to explain what that means as we go through, and I want to begin tonight by reading verse 14 to you. And verse 14 says this. I'll reread it. Now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. This main attribute that this generation displays, this this main attribute this people display is persevering through the hardest situations and circumstances. 
This week, I was actually thinking about this. What does it mean to be persevering as a person? I want to flesh this out tonight. What does it mean to persevere? What does it mean to have a persevering attitude or a tribute about you? Does it mean you never cry in front of anyone? Does it mean you wake up every morning at 4.30 a.m.? Shout out to you if you do that. I don't know how, but you do it, but you do it. Does it mean you do 100 push-ups every hour and you're on it? You're doing your 100 push-ups every hour. Does it mean you accomplish a really significant task and you don't complain about it once? What does it mean to be persevering? I, I believe those are maybe attributes of perseverance. Those are maybe aspects of what it means to persevere as a person. But I don't believe it's a true definition of it. And one of the primary themes of Scripture, one of the primary themes of even Jesus' ministry to his disciples is hold on until the very end. Hold on even when it's difficult. Hold through. Persevere. This is one of the main takeaways we read in the word. And we can learn a lot, though, from outside the word on what it means to persevere. One of the primary examples to me that I've been learning about lately is this flower called the snapdragon flower. Skylar's just like gardener extraordinaire, and she's been just telling me all about it. And I became super fascinated by this flower. I read an article on it. This is how the snapdragon flower is described. The snapdragon flower takes some patience for growth especially when in the cold and harsh seasons. This flower is also slow growing at first, but once it is correctly planted, it becomes stronger than it could have in ideal circumstances. Like any strong stemmed flower, colder and harsher conditions are required. This flower will grow into a stronger version of itself if it is established in colder environments. Mundane and super simple, right? Well, as I was reading this, I couldn't help but transport this phrasing about this flower onto my own spiritual journey with Jesus, onto my own faith walk with him. Now, bear with me, but, but this is how I read it into my own narrative and story tonight, and I encourage you to replace it with your name as well. This is how I read it. Nick's faith takes some patience for growth, especially when in the cold and harsh seasons. This faith is also slow growing at first, but once it is correctly planted, it becomes stronger than it could have, in ideal circumstances. Like any strong follower of Jesus, colder and harsher conditions are required. This faith will grow into a stronger version of itself if it is established in colder environments. I believe that just like this simple flower, us as followers of Jesus and the faith that the Lord has established within our hearts is going to be strengthened this year and deepened this year but in ways that we may not predict or really like up front. See, we like ideal circumstances. Just like a gardener would prefer their flowers and everything to bloom in the springtime when things are easy, when the weather's nice, when you got time off, this flower prefers and is actually stronger in a colder, more difficult, harsher condition. I believe this is almost a prophetic moment for us stepping into 2024. And that this is what perseverance entails. This is what scripture tells us in 1 Peter, verse 6. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of faith I want to have in my life. I don't want to have some kind of little fire, little flame snuffed out at any sideways circumstance. I want to have a faith that perseveres through the fire. Amen? 
So ultimately, this is what I want to speak into tonight. If you want to step with me into this journey of a deeper, more persevering faith, lean in tonight. This is the faith I believe that Jesus calls us to. But it's up to you to be willing to accept his call or not. When it comes to ideal circumstances, when it comes to the way we think things should be, man, it's really easy to want those things. It's really easy to desire the ideal mental health. It's really easy to desire the ideal job with the ideal pay. It's really easy to idealize how life should be or should have been. And there's nothing wrong to some degree of desiring certain things. But let's be honest, life is not that easy or perfect. Circumstances do not come in that way, shape, or form often. And if for you everything's ever worked out in your life, uh, just wait, okay? Uh, But (laughs) life is more often than not less than ideal. So if that's the case, if we're faced with circumstances in our life tonight, whether it's circumstances we brought upon ourselves, out of habits, out of patterns, out of lifestyles, or it's circumstances that people have brought onto us due to their sin, you may feel discouraged tonight. You may feel frustrated. You may have stepped into this space if you're being honest with the person sitting next to you, the person sitting in front of you, the people you talked with before you got here. Life kind of sucks right now. If you're being very upfront, you're very frustrated, you're very upset. You feel as if there, there's no chance of redemption, there's no chance of reconciliation. My friend, I, I have to tell you something. In those circumstances, in those situations where you feel like you wish you looked like a pretty flower like that, if anything, you feel like you're withering away day by day, that is the ideal circumstance for God to work the greatest. That is the circumstance that God uses for his glory. Because, hey, when things go your way, it's really easy to thank your genetics, right? Hey, when things go your way, it's really easy to thank your good looks or your career or your hard work or your intelligence. When you're at the lowest of the low and God still does something, that God still moves, hey, you don't have anybody else to thank or give glory to but him. And so I'm wondering, stepping into this year, if we're ready to have a persevered faith. If we're desiring that, if we're craving that, I sense in the room tonight the disposition that many of us are carrying into this space, that we're we're hungry for that. We're hungry for a deeper faith. We're tired of the shallow. We're tired of the surface level. We need something to carry us through to the next day, more than a hype, more than just a song, but the deeper reality of what it means to be tethered closer to who Jesus is. And I believe we can understand this through looking at the story in Joshua I want to start by tonight by telling you about perseverance, that this is the first idea. Deep roots grow in bad circumstances. Deep roots grow in bad circumstances. You may ask, what does this have to do with a Joshua generation? What are we even reading about? little Old Testament catch-up for you. Joshua is the leader of a generation that before him, there was a leader named Moses, okay? Moses was called by God. He was this outcast, this outsider. Nobody believed in him. Nobody liked him. But he was called by God to free his family from slavery under an oppressive country, okay? It'd be like you being in prison in North Korea and your uncle pulls up to bail you out. It'd be great. You'd be stoked, okay? Trust me. You would be excited. You don't want to be in prison in North Korea. These Israelites, this people group, Moses' family is enslaved. He frees them from slavery through God's will and divine providence. And then he is now the leader of this people, 
So some thousand group of people, he's now their leader. He's now the mouthpiece for God. That God speaks to him, he writes it down, and he lets the people read it. He lets the people know about it. Now, this takes place in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, in Leviticus, if you want to read about it. It's some crazy reading, okay? There may or may not be a part in Leviticus about a woman not grabbing a man's genitals while he's in a fist fight. That's real, okay? That's in the Bible. Uh, In Exodus, people are getting, like, impaled by spears. People are being swallowed up by the ground. People are getting lit on fire. People are being stoned to death, okay? And you heard the Bible was boring, okay? I'm here to inform you. It is not. It's a pretty intense narrative. And God has this vision for this family. He has this vision for these people. And this vision is to bring these people to a place and a space to form a new heavenly orientated community. That it's not about themselves or about a king or about anything else, but about serving this God, Yahweh. And God has one condition for them to be able to accomplish that as he sees fit. This is pretty much what you could boil down all the law to be. Don't be selfish. That's pretty much all he instructs them to be. Don't be selfish. Don't just consider yourself. Consider me and consider others. You want to guess what happens? They're selfish. (laughs) They they repeat the same human pattern condition that's been happening since the garden with Adam and Eve. They chose themselves over their neighbor or the Lord. And so the Lord calls it. He says, this generation will not be allowed to enter into the land I've given them, the land I've promised them. Instead, there will be a better generation to enter in led by a more faithful person. This person is chosen, and his name is Joshua. And now we're at the very end of his life. He's like 100-something years old. He needs somebody to probably like speak for him because he's so old. And Joshua steps in as this leader, and he's this prominent figure. And I love his honesty in, the, in this chapter, and I love his just frankness with these people. He understands that they have been a faithful generation, that their parents haven't been so great, that their grandparents haven't been so great. And he pretty much tells them, don't go back to what plagued your families. Don't go back to the stuff and all the garbage that our families, our parents, and their parents brought in to this community. Cut that out. But I love that Joshua comprehends this fact. He he pretty much says, choose who you will serve. You make the choice. And I I like that he warns them because he's pretty much telling them, just because you have a good track record doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. You are just as subject to stumble and fall into the stuff your parents did as you yourself are. But here's the fascinating thing about this passage. Joshua understands that circumstances are hard on the children of Israel because of the environment they're placed within. That the circumstances they're in, we're talking about not being ideal. This is a less than ideal situation. They're surrounded on all sides by people who want to destroy them physically and destroy them spiritually. That they're surrounded by a group of people that do not respect the God they serve or the religion they practice. He cites different people, the Amorites and those beyond the river. And different scholars disagree. I'm not going to bore you with all the nuance of Marduk and Baal and all these different ideas. But here's what you need to understand. Throughout the ancient Near East... People, when left to their own devices, they would end up worshiping two things, okay? It was either some kind of fertility god or goddess or some type of god for uh, the crops and the rain and all these things. And now you say, oh, that's kind of low-key. They probably, like, had their astrology and, oh, my gosh, whatever. It was a little bit more intense than that. These people, to worship these religions, to worship these gods, they would do one of two things most likely, if not two things or more. They do child sacrifice, and they do crazy temple orgies. 
So it wasn't just like some low-key, like, oh, they just disagree with us. Like, these people literally are murdering their own people and also wanting to oppress and stomp out the people of Israel. This is no lighthearted, we-can-just-be-friends situation. Here, let me explain it this way as well. Joshua isn't as well just trying to list out and give these people their own conscience. He's not trying to say, here's a bunch of rules, and here's what you need to follow to be a good person, and good luck with that, because it's how you build a society. No, he is explaining and helping them to understand that this Yahweh they serve is so different and set apart from any other god or deity celebrated in other cultures or regions. That this Yahweh is set apart. This Yahweh desires one thing and one thing only, all the glory and honor. For a little context, this is how one of the creation stories of the Mesopotamian Marduk begins. Marduk vanquishes Tiamat. Marduk then uses Tiamat's carcass. He splits her in half like a dried fish and places one part on high to become the heavens, the other half to be the earth. Marduk decides to create humanity as slaves to accomplish the grueling labor he doesn't feel like doing. Sounds like a great guy. I want to check out his LinkedIn. Okay, like, terrible, right? That's pretty oppressive. Like, to be born and raised in a society in a moment where the God you serve sees you as a grueling slave to which to accomplish his tasks, you probably don't have a very high view of humanity. But then that's contrasted with the creation story of this Yahweh, this this Hebrew God, that when he crafts humanity, he crafts humanity in his own image, that, that he wants humanity to be co-laborers with him, that he invites humanity into relationship, that he wants to till the earth and work the ground and cultivate culture and an environment alongside them. This is the story of this God we serve. And Joshua understands that the moment this people return to a way of life or go to a lifestyle that is anything apart from this worldview this Yahweh, this loving God, this one that has made humanity's image, they will be enslaved to their desires and the system to which they've committed themselves to. That what maybe promised freedom or a good time or something they desired or wanted will inevitably shackle them to shame. I believe I've beat a dead horse over a million times saying this, but David Foster Wallace, the author, put it so well and how this ends up happening with humanity. This is what he says in his essay, This is Water. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. See, this is why Joshua incites them to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Often when we talk about this topic, fear the Lord, I believe we're asking the wrong questions. We're, we're putting God into a box that he is not. We're, we're putting our own personal tributes of anger and these different things upon the Lord. Here's why I believe we're asked to fear the Lord in Scripture, to revere him, to honor him above all else. If you want to put it simply, that's what it is. Because if you do not fear the Lord, if you do not put him in the place he deserves— Other things in life that are lesser versions of God will take that space. You will begin to fear people. You'll begin to fear the economy. You'll begin to fear opinions. You'll begin to fear politics. You'll begin to set all these things as the precedent of your life 
and the standard for which you should be living before God should be placed there, and it will shackle you. It will ruin you inside and out. That is the conflict, the issue of sin that we face, that our sin nature wants to do that. But Joshua is calling these people, fear the Lord, place him in the place he deserves. Don't put anything else in the spot that he is due. But then we may ask, in all the midst of this, we ask these big questions like, if this Yahweh is so good, if this God is so good, why does he even allow other options? Why does he even allow harsh circumstances to surround his people then and now? Now, people have answered this question who are much smarter than me, so you can go read them. A few of them, Augustine and Herman Bavinck, read their stuff. They're great theologians. But anyway, I believe if you want to make it simple tonight, why are bad circumstances allowed in our life? I want to go back to the first idea. Deep roots grow in bad circumstances. Through all my time in life, through all my journey in faith, this just comes back time and time again. That God has allowed us the free will to choose him or choose what we want. And we are so thick-headed as humans that it takes so much for us to be convinced that God is as good as he says he is. And the original issue isn't humanity, but the lie we believe from Satan in the garden. The original issue is the father of lies. Humanity is not the father of lies. Satan is. But we are so compelled by these lies and other options that I believe God has to allow us to be placed in harsh environments. Harsh environments where we lose our apartment because rent's too high. Harsh environments in a reality where a family loses a child. Harsh environments in a reality like the Amorites are for Israel and Joshua. A circumstance that is pressing in on them, feeling like it's about to crush them from the inside out. I don't necessarily believe God causes all these things, but I believe he allows it very specifically for the deeper formation of our faith. And it's for the same reason that the snapdragon flower thrives in winter. It's a stronger stem. It's a stronger faith. And let's be honest. It's really easy to point the finger at culture, at our circumstances, at our environment, at what's surrounding us. It's really easy to be just mad at everybody else. It's really easy to tweet about it. It's really easy to complain about it. But what begins to happen when we realize that the issues externally aren't as deep, aren't as real, aren't as apparent as the issues internally that we face. That if we're really honest with ourselves, if, if we were to be truthful, the biggest issues we face does, has little to do with what's going on in the world and more to do with the storm raging inside of our hearts. That there is something internal that we're just struggling with in who we are. I believe this is why Joshua presents this in verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. See, it's been said that there's two guarantees in life, death and taxes, okay? April something, make sure to submit them, I guess. I want to add a third to that list, okay? The third guarantee in life, okay? Death, for sure. Taxes, sadly. I want to say a third. Family drama, okay? Family drama, yeah, I guess, yeah, we know, okay? Family drama, doesn't matter how much money your family makes, doesn't matter where your family lives, doesn't matter how many people are in your family, every single person deals with family drama, okay? And if right now you're thinking, man, I haven't really dealt with family drama, probably two things for you, my friend. Just wait, number one, 
Number two, you're probably the source of the drama. Had to say it. Okay? So, yeah. So, the reality is we all face the reality of the tension of growing up with these people we didn't get to choose, like our friends or a job, and you're kind of stuck with them. And it's really frustrating, and it's really difficult. This is the moment Joshua and his generation is a part of. That no matter what they like to think, no matter where they came from, this is the lineage they are a part of, a lineage of unfaithfulness, a lineage of complaining, a lineage of not being faithful to God. The odds are not stacked in their favor, to put it lightly, okay? And this is even confirmed in secular work about family and the origin of family and how it contributes to a person's development. This is Carl Jung, the psychologist. This is what he said about family. Psychologically, the central point of a human personality is a place where the ancestors are reincarnated. Man, that is nuts. Like, that is a nuts thing to say. That literally, anytime you're acting up, just like, oh, it's just like Mima. She's just, like, coming out right now. Like, she's just... Getting these Facebook opinions out here right now. But truly, it, it doesn't take a PhD or a person who's wasted their entire life away just studying different books, understanding the brain. It's easy to see that whoever your parents are in whatever circumstance you grow up in, it influences you. It influences me. It influences us as people because the first people we are exposed to, the very first people we are made aware of, are the most influential people on us. And so I say that, and the gears may be turning in your head. You may feel very hopeless. You're like, man, if you knew my parents, if you knew the circumstances I grew up in, if you knew the household I came from, I don't want that to be my reality. Well, I have good news for you tonight. I believe this, this, this is true. What didn't start with us can end with us. I believe that without a, with a, without a shadow of a doubt that Something started long before you and I entered this earth with our parents and their struggles and our family circumstances and stuff we didn't ask for. And that was long before we stepped into the picture, most likely. But that doesn't mean it has to stay with us, my friends. It doesn't mean the trauma and the cyclical patterns that our parents have reciprocated decade after decade, we have to carry on. I don't believe we're just left up to the devices of psychology and humanity and different things. I believe we serve a God who makes us a new creation in Christ. That's the God I serve. I don't know about you, but that's the God I believe in. That's the God I've trusted in, that no matter what I've been through, no matter the circumstances, the trauma, that he can work all things together for his good. And I love that Joshua points this out in verse 15. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. See, he's displaying a heart posture that I believe Jesus displayed in his own ministry. When he, when he asked of Peter, who do people say that I am? It, it, and who do you say that I am? That there's a certain caliber of honesty, 100% honesty, you could say, that Jesus requires of his disciples. And I believe this, God is most concerned with you and I's intentions, with what we, we really mean, what we really intend, what we really desire in life. That's the stuff he's concerned about. That's the stuff he wants to be around and orientated with. He's not simply concerned about how we do things based on how we believe other people did it and how it should be done. He's concerned with the heart, the individual, the person. There's no grandparent faith. There's no because your parents believe you're good now. He's concerned with the individual. There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God, it's been said. I believe there's a deeper emphasis and a call for you and I right now. Stepping into this year, 
And I believe we can begin to end these generational repetitions with honesty. That one of the key ways that things within generation after generation after generation stays in a family is because people just aren't honest with themselves. That the way things stay in a family, generational sin is repeated, is for one reason, it's intentional ignorance. That parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts didn't sit these children down, didn't sit you and I down and have an honest conversation with us of the history and the struggle to which we face. That we were kind of thrown into this and we struggle with it blindly. If we are unwilling to confront the real things in life, if we are unwilling to confront the true intentions in our heart, we will be blinded, blinded like the generations before us. This is why Joshua says, choose who you will serve. Make up your mind. If you don't really want to serve God, don't do it then. It's up to you. It's your life. It's your eternity. I believe that what didn't start with us could end with us, though. If we're willing to be honest with ourselves tonight, honest with the people surrounding us, of the true reality of the struggles we face. See, this is frustrating because for Joshua, it seems so easy. There's people, there's circumstances, there's an environment to point to. But it's harder to point out the less blatant pitfalls that we fall into as people. The, less, the things that we struggle with that we don't even know as to why we struggle with. There's so much nuance and depth and, and so many sides to this that we don't understand as people. So much of the reality of spiritual warfare is attached to this as well. But I believe there's a reason Jesus compared himself to a good shepherd. I don't know if you spend a lot of time around sheep, okay? Those of you on farms, probably hanging out with them before you came here. But here's the thing about sheep. Jesus compares us to sheep. Let me say, oh, that's so cute. Like, I'm fluffy, and I'm kind of cross-eyed, and like, oh, I'm so cute. I'm a little sheep. No, okay, hey, sheep are scary looking. I don't know. I don't care. They have, like, beady eyes. That's why in Zootopia, they're the villains. I'm convinced, okay? But Jesus compares us to sheep, and it may seem cute on the surface level until you start watching sheep, okay? Sheep don't know how to do anything, okay? doesn't matter how many sheep you get in a room. There's no shepherd. They're going to, like, light the place on fire. They're going to, like, like blow up the stock exchange. I don't know. They're going to do something crazy, okay? Sheep in a room together, they don't do anything right. Sheep in a field, they don't do anything right. There's a reason Jesus compares us to sheep and him as the good shepherd, because we need him. We need him to conduct our daily life. We need his guidance. We need his help to rescue us out of the circumstances we put ourselves in. That often we feel very blind to the struggles we face. And we often wake up or we look around after we've dropped the ball on a commitment, on an addiction, whatever it may be. And we just think, what got me here? I wonder for how many of us we've been trying to look to other resources. We've been trying to just rely on other people, fellow sheep. We've been trying to rely on something apart from the Father to be our help. I want to encourage you tonight. Jesus wants to help you, my friend. There's, there's a reason at the end of John that Jesus said his presence physically manifested Holy Spirit, three God in one, is called the helper, parakletos, to help his followers. Because here's the reality. If Jesus stayed on the earth, he said, it's better that I go than I stay with you. Because if Jesus stayed on the earth, we'd have to schedule out on his outlook calendar. 2065, I have five minutes with Jesus. Cool. Hopefully, I'm struggling with the same stuff and still around by that time. If he was physically here like he was on the earth as a human, 
But now we have the Holy Spirit who can be with every single one of us and dwelling within us at the point of salvation for life forever. That's a beautiful, beautiful reality. But I wonder for how many of us we've been blindly, as followers of him, we've been blindly just squandering away our life trying to figure out how to do this thing. And we haven't even just talked with him. Right? Like, we, we haven't even just taken time, slowed down, put the phone away, sat in the car, taken a walk, and just asked, Lord, I need your help. I mean, if you want to begin that journey tonight, I believe it begins with a prayer that is very simple. And that's a prayer of inviting Holy Spirit into your circumstance. Inviting Holy Spirit into the ways in which you are struggling, the ways in which you don't want to repeat generational patterns. That when we begin to pray this prayer, when we begin to have this honest conversation with the Lord, he reveals things in our hearts. He reveals things that others cannot reveal. I want to encourage you tonight. It may have started before us, but it does not have to end with us. And then Joshua ends his little montage in this moment from one of the probably the most profound statements. And I want to say the early part of the Old Testament. But for as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. So last year, uh, I, I became kind of an art snob, okay? I'm sorry. I'm not like wearing a little beret, okay? Drinking espresso, all right? And I was at this museum, and um, I just fell in love with a painting by this artist by the name of Monet. And uh, we can throw it up. And this is a really fascinating artist because I began to uh, do research on him. And he was actually hated by all of his peers and his family for painting. Yeah, literally, okay? He would paint homeless people. He would paint really ugly people. He would paint less than ideal circumstances. In this painting, there's somebody who's crippled in the lower corner. I think we have one more painting by him. This is just a homeless man he painted because he thought he looked cool. He named him the philosopher. And at this time in art history, you may think, oh, like, that's so, like, based of him, I guess. I don't know. Like, but at that time in art history, this is not what you did. You got really good-looking models. You got people to sculpt. You got the ideal people of, a, like, society to paint and to do all your work after. You wouldn't paint just random people on the street. Everybody thought he was a joke. Everybody hated him. Nobody really liked him. He, he received so much intense vitriol from people. This is what he said in the letter to a friend. The attacks of which I have been objected to have broken this spring of life in me. People don't realize what it feels like to be constantly insulted. Like, this guy's just at the lowest of the low. Like, he was just struggling. Here's the thing about Monet. Nobody liked him when he was alive, really. Nobody liked him in the moment he was in. He had a lot of critics. But want to know something? Now he is considered the father of modern painting. He is one of the most significant people in art history of all time. His painting a few years ago sold for like $35 million to some rich person, okay? So take that, haters, all right, in the 19th century, I guess. You want to know what people are known for who hated Monet at the time? They're all, all they're cited as, as critic of Monet. They're not even named, okay? So this guy's outlasted them. This guy has made it through history. And I find that so fascinating that in the moment he's in, nobody likes him, nobody really believes in him, nobody cares for him. But he's this individual who is able to persevere through the shame and the hate and the circumstances to produce something beyond himself. This is what led him to stay one time. No one can be a painter unless he cares for painting above all else. I believe we can apply the same circumstance and heart posture when it comes to following Jesus. 
uh, to resist generational and family circumstances and a culture that doesn't really care for what you believe in and an environment that may be a little bit oppressive towards you. To look at our dire odds in the face and to truly persevere in our faith, we must carry a similar disposition. And I believe this, that the vision for your life must be bigger than you. Just like this simple artist who has been kind of lost to the history of time, he was able to outlast time through focusing his energy, his time, his passion on something a little bit beyond himself. But I believe we, as followers of Jesus, have something so much more significant to look to than simply the passion of painting, but of who Jesus is. I'll even go as far as to say Jesus is the most significant person ever. And following him is the most significant purpose to ever live for. I'm not crazy for saying that. I may sound crazy. There's many of us in this room that the reason we're here is for that same conviction or interested in that conviction. But Joshua in the Old Testament had come to the same conviction for following the Lord. That despite the circumstances, despite what faces him, but for as me and my house, you guys can do whatever you want. You can serve whoever you want, do whatever you want. It's not my life, it's yours. But as for me and the people I influence, we're going to serve the Lord. That no matter what comes my way, no matter what's difficult, no matter how many times I'm made to disagree with the way life's going, I've made up my mind and I'm committing myself to Yahweh's plan. I want to ask you tonight, have you decided? More specifically, have you decided what you're going to do with your life? You're like, that's a weird question. No, I'm not your high school English teacher or a PE coach or some weird life coach. I'm not asking what you do day-to-day life or, oh, I'm getting my PhD. I don't care. Have you decided what you're going to do with your life? And more specifically, have you decided what is going to be the most significant thing about your life? It's a big question. It's a very philosophical, intense question. But I ask it, and I'm intense about it on purpose, because that question matters. And there's two responses to that question. You either end up living life for yourself or some kind of purpose a little bit beyond yourself, really rooted in your own desires, or you end up living your life for the greatest purpose ever, and that's the Lord. So the way we break generational trauma, the the way we push back against circumstances that aren't ideal, it's not by mustering up, by just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, just trying our hardest, but it's making the decision that No matter what I go through, no matter what I face, no matter what this year brings me, this year isn't about me, but it's about the purpose the Lord has placed on my heart. Has he made that purpose known to you? Has has he spoken to you what that reality is? To make his name known and more great. It's not intense, it's not crazy, it's not, you don't have to go on a pilgrimage to go find it. Simply to place him at the seat of honor in your life and just make his name known in every environment you're in. So for you and I, what that looks like is it, is it looks like beginning to really take serious the convictions the Lord has placed on our life. The convictions he's spoken. It's taking the words of Jesus and asking ourselves, what does this actually mean for what it means to be human in 2024? Not, oh, that's kind of cool. Makes me feel you bubbly. I'm going to post it on whatever. Make a reel out of it. I don't know is what does this really mean, though? Reading the words of Jesus, reading the words of the New Testament, really asking ourselves, yeah, but what does that mean for what it means to be human? 
and wrestling with that and asking ourselves about that, praying to the Lord about that. I don't want you to go blindly into another year where you're just holding on by the fringes of somebody else's faith, hoping you'll make it on the other side. Believe that if you decide to live your life for him, he's gonna honor that. So I wanna invite you into that tonight. I, don't want, I want to invite you into your time has come. Your, your time for decision has shown up. Your life is gonna be marked for either living for yourself, maybe something a little bit better than that, I don't know, or it's gonna be marked by living for the Lord. And it's not to gain his favor, it's not it's that he loves you deeper, it's that he's the only person worth serving. So in closing, I wanna pray for you. I just want to ask you, young adults, 2024, what's this year going to be marked with? There's going to be struggle. There's going to be sin. There's going to be difficulty. There will be pushback. There will be things you face this year. But at the end of the year, will you look back and will you focus more on your mistakes, more on the things you didn't do, or more on the reality of God's goodness? And I want to say in the beginning what I said, again, it doesn't matter how low you feel like you are. It doesn't matter how far from redemption you're sensing yourself to be right now. That's where God works the greatest. And I believe for many of us in this space tonight, he wants to begin to mold that more and more, our failures, our sin, to his goodness and his glory and his honor. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you never give up on us. Thank you that the family struggles we go through, the things we're faced with, the generational trauma we face, the circumstances of people not liking us, the critics, all the things, Lord, Thank you that through all of that, you remain faithful. That when people are flaky, when we are flaky, when we don't show up, you always show up. Maybe not ways we expect or ways we really wanted, but Lord, you show up how we need. So Father, I pray that those listening to this, that we may make the choice to follow you. And not just to follow you, but to allow our lives to be marked by you and your goodness and your glory. Not by our accomplishments, not by how cool we think we are or how much we think we failed, but how good, how gracious, and how loving our Savior is. May we be a Joshua generation that despite the circumstances, despite what we've been faced with, we may mimic that heart posture that, but for me and my household, for me and those I know, we will serve the Lord. May we serve you, Father. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's worship.